This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Man, that felt good. That felt good saying that. And you might be thinking to yourselves, well, Kyle, why does it feel good? Guys, because I have not recorded a podcast in a very, very long time. And you might be thinking, well, Kyle, I've been hearing you every week. But here's the thing, guys. Uh, As I told you about a couple of months ago, my wife gave birth to our sweet baby boy, sweet baby James. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to make sure that I could be available to her and to him in the early parts of his life, right postpartum with uh, with Kelsey and kind of go from there. And the thing about that is, is I got like two months worth of podcasts recorded, ready to go in the hospital so that they could be coming out to you guys every Thursday because I didn't want you to be without, right? You know, because I'm just so self-involved and self-important. I just knew you weren't going to be able to get by without me, right? Is, is that how it goes? That's at least what I tell myself. But but guys, you know, nothing's really happened in the last two months. So it's not like I would have talked about anything live that was actually going on at the time in the country, right? Yeah, so uh, apparently the last time I talked to you guys, things were crazy with COVID and we thought COVID was going to dominate the news cycle basically for the rest of the year. And now we're sitting in the the craziness of what's going on with race issues. And that's at the forefront of what everybody's thinking about and talking about in the United States. And it's like, we can't escape it. This subject matter is literally everywhere that we look right now, no matter where you look. And so one thing that I've been asked a lot over these last several months now is Kyle, why aren't you talking about this? Hey, hey, when are you going to re- release a podcast on this? Hey, what do you think about the George Floyd killing? Hey, hey, what do you think about what ha- what's happening with the officers? Hey, what do you think about what's happening to the country about the Black Lives Matter and defund the police? What do you think about all these things? And first of all, I had kind of had the built-in excuse. Well, it's like, hey, well, I've got all these podcasts already ready to go and the schedule's already set and it's recorded and I need to help out, you know, Kelsey and Sweet Baby James and all the things like that. But to be honest with you, this is a topic that I never really thought I was going to have to cover on this podcast. Because obviously, if you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, I don't shy away from any subject matter, right? I go at some of the most incendiary subject matter, some of the most divisive subject matters that you can think of abortion, you know, being one that I talk about a lot. So, but, but race seems to be a a completely different thing entirely. And there, there's kind of this idea in the country now to where like, if you're, if you're a white guy, you, you can't really give your opinion on this. And so this was a subject matter, to be honest with you, like, I just didn't think that I was going to have to go there and talk about it. Um, but even whenever I decided that, Hey, I'm probably going to have to, to go full bore and really talk about what's going on here. I, I wanted to wait. I didn't want to add to the clutter and the noise of every single person on Twitter and every single person on Facebook and Instagram and every single person on the mainstream media and in the news and in the blog blogosphere and all those things. I, I didn't want to just add to that. And not because again, not because I'm so self-involved. It's like, well, my opinion is so much higher. So let me just wait until all this riffraff is out of here. No, it was just, I wanted everyone to calm down a bit because whenever you think using emotion and for most of you guys out there, you've done some of the worst things in your life based on just emotions and feelings that you were feeling at that exact time. And you later came to regret it. I wanted to wait until everyone calmed down a bit. Um, but perhaps that hasn't really happened. I don't think things have calmed down. I certainly don't think people have calmed down, but, but whatever, you know, I I gave it a little bit of room to breathe and we're kind of going from there, but really just for me personally, I wanted to gather my thoughts so I wouldn't regret saying anything later. Or, or I guess regret how I said it, right? So I think that I'm in a good place now. And that's something that I definitely want to launch into um, because I've been gathering thoughts for the last two months now about what's going on, what it means for you guys, how it pertains to us, uh, the capital C church, America, you know, all those things. And the thing was, is I honestly thought whenever I was going to prepare this episode that I could get all of those thoughts into one show in, into one episode but I just can't. I just realistically, I can't do that. So what we're doing here is this is part one 
of Race in America. This is going to be at least two parts because I don't really do parts, right? I think I did toxic masculinity part one and part two, and that's been the only, you know, dual subject that I've kind of ran into. But this will be at least two parts, but it's probably going to end up being three parts. So the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about this in different facets and at different levels. Uh, This one today focuses mainly on what happened. You know, what's happened over the last couple of months, what has kind of gotten us to where we are right now. But as a primer for what I'm going to likely be covering, and this isn't an exhaustive list, but over the next three episodes, I'm going to certainly give you my thoughts on the killings of George Floyd and Rayshard Brooks uh, in particular. Um, The thoughts, my overall thoughts on racial issues in America, my thoughts on police and police violence, Black Lives Matter, the organization, and also Black Lives Matter, the sentence, which is very, very different, which we'll get more into next week. Uh, The politics of it all, there's certainly a lot of politicking going on. On right now on every facet of this. Um, what is, what's maybe actually going on with these riots? Uh, there, there's something underlying everything that's going on that I don't think everyone realizes quite yet. Cultural Marxism, how that's kind of taken root even in the modern day church. My thought on reparations, which is getting new steam and, and life in terms of those types of things. My thoughts on racial reconciliation as we move forward, certainly as the body of Christ. And I'm going to go into a lot of other subjects, but those are going to be some of the things that we're talking about over the next three weeks. But guys, before we launch in to today's episode, before we launch into part one, there's a few things that I want you to keep in mind while you're listening to this episode, but also the subsequent episodes that are going to be on the subject matter. The first thing is this, is many of my thoughts today and on these subsequent episodes, they are my own. But I will be interspersing thoughts that I picked up from a plethora of other sources. I've been listening to a lot of news, a lot of podcasts, a lot of blogs, doing a lot of reading. And I will do my best, guys, to give credit to those sources when appropriate. Um, Though I will likely make mistakes and accidentally uh, omit some people that actually had the idea first. But it's kind of one of those things that, you know, like minds think alike or great minds think alike. And so I would have thoughts that came to mind. And then a week later, I'd hear someone say it on a podcast. It's like, okay, well, it's, I guess it's not that very, very unique of a, of a viewpoint on that. Um, another thing is there are a lot of side topics and narratives, um, uh, that I simply can't get to in our time together. There are so many different through points and things that are weaved together in all this. I'm just not going to be able to get to all of it. So guys, if you're looking for a podcast, that's a historical accounting of the entirety of the topic of race in America, you will be disappointed if you listen to this one and expect that. That's not what this is going to be. Also, this is really important. If you feel yourself getting hyped up at any point during this episode or the next one or two, whether you're in agreement with me or in disagreement with me, I want you to pause the episode. Honestly, I want want you to pause the episode, maybe go listen to something else, maybe go do something else. Take a break. Because I want you to try to remain emotionally neutral when you're listening to these. Because there's so much emotion with all these things. There's so many people being emotional about this subject matter. And some of them have every right in the world to be. But I don't want you to do that. I want you to listen to all this and really lean on things other than emotion. Another thing is, guys, a lot of the things that I'm likely to say, um, these are things that you haven't heard many or any other people say. So many of the things that I'm going to say today and in the subsequent weeks, they're not going to get a hundred thousand retweets or likes and you know, it's that, that's okay, right? I'm not doing this uh, for the popularity or any of those types of things. I just want to be honest with you. And again, you've kind of requested me talk about the subject matter. So I'm going to, I'm going to wait in. Um, and guys, uh, to be honest with you, a lot of things that I'm going to say are things that you're quote unquote, not allowed to say. These, these are things that currently fall outside of the Overton window for most people. Okay. But this is another really important thing. And I promise I'll get started here in just a second. Okay. If I say something and your knee jerk reaction is to think that the statement is racist and that I 
and thus a racist. I would urge you to withhold your judgment. I, I would strongly urge you to deeply consider what I said, devoid of emotion, and then stand on reason. And that's about as clear as I could possibly make that. Um, but just, just guys from the very top, just know that if one of my opinions offends you, I honestly, I just don't care. Because again, these are opinions and opinions can't be wrong. They might be offensive. They might be, you know, counter to your sensibilities, but it just kind of is what it is. But here's the thing, guys, is if I say something that's inaccurate, that is factually inaccurate, I care a lot about that. I don't care if you're offended. I care if I say something that's incorrect and I wish to be corrected. So if I say something that's incorrect, info at undaunted.life is my email, or you can hit me up on Instagram. Find me. Okay. And guys, the last thing here, don't assume that you know where I'm going with a point and don't assume that you know where I'm going to end up. Stick with me to the end. Okay. Again, I'm kind of an equal opportunity offender, right? I'm going to offend a, a lot of people probably with, with what I'm going to say and some of the things that I think, and that's fine. If this leads to better conversations and deeper conversations later, later in, in more consideration, then that's fine. That's what we're going to go with. So guys, as we launch in here, I think the best place for me to start is just basically to spend a, a little bit of time talking about my racial history. This won't be long, but for those of you that don't know, I'm a white guy, right? And as a white guy, I just consider myself an American. Okay. In terms of my heritage, I'm mainly Irish and Scottish and Choctaw Indian. Okay. There might be some English interspersed in there, but spoiler alert, I never, I don't have anybody in my family tree that has ever owned slaves uh, in the African slave trade in the United States, right? You know, with the Irish and Scottish going back to the Gaelic side and also with the Choctaw Indians, you know, we were enslaved. We also enslaved people. It's a mess, but that that's kind of my history. I'm, I'm a European and a Choctaw Indian mutt. That's kind of what I am. But I grew up in a surprisingly diverse town in Southwest Oklahoma. Okay. So for those of you that have never been to Southwest Oklahoma, there's not a whole lot of diversity down there, except in the town of Lawton. So in Lawton, Oklahoma, there is an army base, Fort Sill is an artillery base, and that's attached to the city of Lawton. And so we get a ton of different people from all over the country and really all over the world. And so I grew up with people of all races and all shapes and all sizes and all religions and all backgrounds. And that was just normal from the time that I was in kindergarten, right? A lot of my friends that grew up in other parts of Oklahoma, they didn't have that experience. They went to schools that were 100% white or, you know, there might be a few Latinos or it might be a few people mixed here or there, but it was basically a bunch of white people. I just had a very, very different experience growing up. There's actually, I don't know if I told this story before, but a very short story. There was this girl, uh, my freshman year of college, I, you know, picked her up at the girl's dorm and we were going to walk to the gym and go work out together and, you know, do whatever. We were on the same scholarship program and we're walking towards a gym and she kind of pulls my shirt and says, Hey, can we, can we walk through the courtyard of this building? Which if I could show you where this building was, like that was a really stupid way to go. It kind of like took you out of the way in order to get to the gym as opposed to going in a straight line. I was like, yeah, okay, sure. Whatever. And so while we're walking across the parking lot about to walk in the gym, I was like, what was that about? And she's like, don't get mad. I'm like, get mad. Like we've known each other for like 14 days. What are you talking about? Get mad. She's like, well, did you see those guys hanging out outside? I'm like, what guys? She's like, those black guys. I was like, Oh yeah. Those guys that were hanging outside the, the dorms. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess I noticed them. Why? She goes, I've never seen a black person in person before. And I'm like, I'm, I'm 18 years old. She's 18 years old. And this is the first time in her life. She had seen a black person in person, right? She grew up in a town that I'll just remain, or, you know, leave nameless here on this podcast. But you know, there are a lot of people that don't have that diverse of an upbringing, but I had a tremendously diverse upbringing. Um, but the thing about growing up in Lawton is I got to see some things that people don't necessarily get to see around the country. I got to see a lot of racism. 
uh, directed at different races, but I also got to see intra racism, right? Uh, from people that are in the same class, right? The same group, I guess you can say. Um, I remember a lot of light skinned and dark skinned black people, uh, kids of mine, uh, friends of mine growing up, um, that were bullied by other black people. And especially the light skinned and mixed blacks, I saw them being being just bullied a lot by by other black people. I, I thought that was weird. Um, I didn't really understand it at the time, but you know the the Puerto Ricans and the Mexicans were were always getting at each other, right? And uh, it it was like this, this kind of weird thing. And then there was the the Mexican people, and then there was like the Central American folks. And it's like I, I never really understood what was going on, but I guess I was around a lot of racism growing up. But in terms of me and my family, there are members of my immediate family that are not white. I have a black stepfather and a stepbrother that's from Brazil. Uh, so it's not just like a, a bleached white. You know, we were, you know, lower middle class, middle class family. But I mean, we, you know, we got by. We, we did what we needed to do. Um, also, there are a lot of friends of mine that I consider to be closer to me than, than blood, you know, as close as a brother. And they just so happen to be black. So, yeah, I guess you can say, oh, so you're saying you have a black friend so you can say whatever. No, I'm just just kind of giving you an idea. I grew up with people of all different races and I just I looked at them as my buddies. I didn't look at them as my black buddy or my poor. Rican buddy. You know what I mean? Um, and here, here's the thing, I guess, before we go any further is to anyone that thinks that I shouldn't be speaking on this subject matter, that, that I shouldn't have an opinion because I'm a white Christian, cisgendered, heterosexual male, just freaking bite me. I, I don't care. I don't care about your, you know, your racism towards me because I'm a white guy having these subject matters. I have a functioning prefrontal cortex. So I feel like I can talk on these subjects. Um, and saying that I can't have an opinion on this because I'm not a person of color is akin to saying, you know, I don't know, like somebody can't have an opinion on fiscal policy because they've never owned a business or they can't say, ah, that, that probably isn't the picture I would have brought in if they've never actually pitched in the major leagues. Like there's different experiences to everything, but people can have their opinions, but that's kind of my racial history in a nutshell to kind of give you an idea of, of kind of what my upbringing was like and what that was like. But there's also America's racial history, which the thing about it is we don't need to spend a lot of time on this because you guys, you all know this, even guys that are listening to this podcast overseas, you, you've certainly heard about this, but all of the biggest sins of this nation as a nation have to do with racism, in my opinion, okay? Namely, the African slave trade and Jim Crow South. There is, there is zero convincing me that those things were anything other than overtly racist. They were also overtly other things, but overtly racist. And for time reference, slavery in the United States ended in 1863. That was 157 years ago. In the Jim Crow South and the laws therein, they ended in 1964, which is 56 years ago. Okay, guys, there's not a whole lot more that needs to be said about that, right? America is just like every other country in that we have racists inside the country. And we'll, we'll get more into kind of some of the nuance with that statement even. But I, I think it is ridiculous for people to pretend that nothing has changed for black people in America since 1619, which the New York Times is trying to convince us was the actual founding of the United States, because that's when the first slaves were brought over, um, or in 1863 or 1964. It's ahistorical. It's ignorant to, to say those things. It's so offensive to any black person in modern America that's successful or that is enjoying the life that they've built for themselves and their families here. To, to say that nothing has changed for hundreds of years or decades and decades, it's just disingenuous. Okay. But again, there's no getting around the fact that the African slave trade and the Jim Crow South are absolutely horrific things that were perpetrated by Americans. Okay. But now I feel at the same time that I need to kind of give you my basic views on law enforcement officers, because that's going to be a through point of a lot of things I'm going to be talking about today. For me personally, I've always been taught to give police officers and law enforcement officers 
the utmost amount of respect, no matter what. Yes, sir. No, sir. If a cop tells you to do do something that, that, you know, the dare officer, for those of you guys that grew up with, with dare, you know, the drug stuff uh, in the elementary schools, if they ask you to do something, you did it right. You just respected cops. You know, I watched cops with my dad and I watched these detective shows and it was just, it was one of those professions that you're like, man, those, those are good dudes. There's some bad apples, but there's some good dudes that do that. Um, here's the other thing is I was taught by both of my parents actually separately, you know, after they had gotten a divorce on how to interact with a cop. So there's this narrative that only black parents are having to, you know, teach their kids about how to talk to a cop and how to act around a cop. It's like, no, that that's, that's just a thing thing. That's, that's a human thing. Like whenever I got my driver's license when I was 16, both of my parents separately talked to me about what happens if you get pulled over, right? It's like, okay, so make sure you pull over, like signal, get out of traffic for your safety and the cop's safety, take the keys out of the ignition, you know, put the, put the keys in the passenger seat. You know, uh, in later years, I started rolling down my window and just set my, my hands on, on the door so that the, the guys can see my hands. It's like when they get to the, to the front, you know, or get to the car door, make sure that you've got your license and registration ready to go. Yes, sir. No, sir. You know, if they ask you to get out of the car, get out of the car. If they, if they ask you to do anything, like just comply right within reason, obviously, but, but just comply with them. That, that, that's what I was taught growing up. And here's the other thing, guys, that, that I think was interesting because I've obviously been thinking about this for a while now is even though I grew up in a very diverse town, as I explained, and had a very diverse you know, group of friends, racially speaking, I've never actually heard of specific instances where my friends had negative run-ins with the cops unless they deserved it. Because I, I ran around with some knuckleheads growing up and, and you know, they were breaking the law and so they deserved to have run-ins with the law. But the thing is, I just found that interesting because I'm sure it happened. I'm, I'm sure I had friends that didn't look like me that had run-ins with cops that were racist or had racist tendencies or that were just dickheads overall. And I'm sure that happened, but, but it was never so severe enough to where it came up in conversation. And guys, you know, you know how you and your friends are. You talk about everything, the good, the bad, the ugly, the, you know, the ugly crying and, and the super elation. You talk about everything. And so I just found that that was interesting that even growing up in a diverse town where there were, I had plenty of friends that had run-ins with the cops, I just never heard about any of the racial profiling, the driving while black, all of that. I just, my friends seemed to be uh, not immune to that, but it just, it's something that didn't happen to them. But guys, we really need to kind of break in that. That's kind of foundational for, for what we're talking about today, but we really need to get into what happened. That's why today's episode part one is, is titled, What Happened? Because really the entire country seemingly changed on May 25th of 2020. And that and that's a day for many of us that we will never forget because it's a day that, that literally blew the top off of the greatest country in the history of the world. And it was on this day that George Floyd, a 46 year old black man, though his race shouldn't matter, but a 46 year, 46 year old black man was killed by the actions of a white man, though his race shouldn't matter, named officer Derek Chauvin of the Minneapolis, Minnesota police department. Okay. So right now I'm going to spend a little bit of time getting into the details of what happened because we know what happened. There's a lot of video. There's a lot of witness testimony. We have a pretty darn good idea about what happened, but I just want to review the facts because, you know, some people only get the end of the story. They don't get the beginning of the story. I remember when I first saw the video, I saw like the last 10 seconds of the video. My first thought was, you know, what happened before this? Was there a fight? Like, you know, what, what's even going on here? And so there's a lot of context, but Around 8 p.m. in the evening, uh, Floyd went to a store called uh, Cup Foods. That's a grocery store there in Minneapolis. And he went there to buy cigarettes. And he used a $20 bill for that transaction, okay? So an employee of the grocery store realized at some point after Floyd left that the money that he used in the transaction was a counterfeit bill. It was a phony $20 bill, right? People are like, well, that's alleged. It was a phony $20 bill. So, 
you know, that employee grabbed another employee and they left the store and they both went across the street to confront Floyd because I, apparently he was sitting in a parked SUV with two other people in a parking lot of a restaurant across the street. So when the two employees got to the vehicle, they demanded that George Floyd give the cigarettes back to them and he refused. Okay. So at that point, the employees didn't take it any further. They called the police to report the incident. Now, when they called in this incident, they reported that Floyd, in their estimation, was very drunk at the time, right? And quote unquote, not in control of himself, right? That's what the employees told the dispatcher, okay? So the two police officers that responded to the call initially were Thomas Lane and Alexander Kung, okay? So Thomas Lane is a mixed ethnicity guy. Again, none of this should matter, but I have to say Thomas Lane is a mixed ethnicity guy and Kung was a white guy. So The thing was, is there was a brief struggle, but officer Lane was able to actually get Floyd out of the vehicle and handcuffed him. Okay. Then the officer sat Floyd down, you know, by an exterior wall of the restaurant and Floyd was said to have been calm, right? You know, the the situation was, was calm. He was in handcuffs. He was to the side. They were about to figure out what was going on. So the officers then informed Floyd that he was under arrest and that they were going to walk Floyd across the street and put him into their police cruiser. So they're walking Floyd across the street. And at that point, George Floyd threw himself on the ground. He refused to get into the back of the cop car. He was claiming that he was claustrophobic, that he wasn't going to be able to breathe, you know, so on and so forth. Okay. So a few minutes after all of this is going down, officers, Derek Chauvin, who plays the largest role in all of this, who is a white cop and Tuo Thao, I think is this guy's name, or, or Tu Thao, who is an Asian guy, they arrived on the scene to assist. So now there are four officers that are directly within, you know, uh, touching distance of George Floyd. Floyd told all four of the officers that he couldn't breathe. And that's why he didn't want to get into the back of the cop car. And he was refusing, you know, using his force to basically not get in the back of the cop car. He didn't want to be arrested. Okay. So officer Kung apparently tried to force Floyd into the driver's side back of the cop car, He was unsuccessful and he was unsuccessful for, you know, a meaningful period of time, over a minute, trying to get this human being into the back of the cop car, couldn't do it. So it was at that point that officer Chauvin, he tried to help officer Kung and he, he got on the other side of the car. So he began pulling Floyd from the passenger side, back of the cop car while Kung was, you know, basically pushing from the driver's side, back of the car. So officer Chauvin then actually, once they got Floyd into the back, he, he didn't stop there. He actually pulled Floyd completely out his side. Floyd was still handcuffed. He pulled him out of the car completely and Floyd, you know, fell onto the pavement, onto his face, essentially. So it was at this point that three of the officers subdued Floyd, okay? Because they didn't want him getting up and all those types of things. So they pinned him to the ground. So Officer Lane pinned Floyd's legs. Officer Kung pinned Floyd's torso. And Officer Chauvin pinned Floyd's head to the ground by placing his knee on Floyd's neck. Okay. Officer Tao uh, or Thao, uh, he just supervised. He was just standing around at this time. So not long after that, officers Kung and Lane got off of Floyd, but officer Chauvin did not. Okay. So now, you know, counter to what you've heard in the news from people that don't know any better, what officer Chauvin did initially by putting his, his shin on the neck of George Floyd in order to subdue him, that is an acceptable and trained technique of restraint for police officers when a perpetrator is resisting arrest. Okay. You're taught to either, you know, do it on the neck. It's also generally taught, um, you know, to, to maybe put it in between their shoulder blades or something like that, not necessarily on the side of the neck, but you are to put, you know, pressure in that area. It's in order to subdue the perpetrator long enough to get them cuffed. And then, uh, but the other thing that you're taught here is that as soon as you get them cuffed and subdued, that's when you start taking care of them. Okay. You know, you set them up, you let them get a breath, you know, you do what you need to do to make sure that they calm down and that they're okay. Um, and so that, that's kind of what they were taught to do, but that's not what officer Chauvin did. Okay. Officer Chauvin kept his knee on Floyd's neck 
for close to nine minutes. The, the exact time is still being debated, but it, it was a long time. He kept his knee on the neck of George Floyd for a very, very long time. Okay. Floyd was constantly during this entire ordeal complaining about the pain he was in, that he couldn't breathe. Um, you know, at two points, he even cried out for his mother who is deceased. So that was incredibly sad to see, incredibly brutal to see. Uh, there were even bystanders that were just imploring the cops, begging the cops, really in the most cordial but stern way possible, in my opinion, very cordial but very stern for Officer Chauvin to get his knee off of Floyd's neck. Like, hey man, you got him. He's down. He's he's not moving. Like, you know, he's not resisting. Can you can you please just get off of him? Right? I, I was astounded at, at how controlled the, the crowd was. Um, but then the other three officers on the scene, you know, Tao, who's the Asian, Lane, the mixed guy, and Kung, the white guy, they all stood by and essentially just allowed this to happen. Right. Certainly more on that later. But by the time the ambulance arrived, Floyd was completely unconscious and non-responsive. Okay. And to make matters worse, Officer Chauvin kept his knee on Floyd's neck for almost a minute, even after the ambulance arrived. He still had his knee on Floyd's neck when the EMTs began checking Floyd's vital signs. I mean, just think about the optics of that, much, much less like how that looks, how that actually affects somebody in, in real life. Right. Floyd was later pronounced dead in the emergency room uh, about an hour after the ambulance left the scene where Derek Chauvin had his knee on his neck. So uh, after all this kind of went down, uh, there were two different autopsies done, which has only muddied the waters further in this situation. But the Hennepin County Medical Examiner ruled that uh, George Floyd's death was a homicide, but it was caused by cardiopulmonary arrest while being restrained by the officers who had basically subjected Floyd to neck compression. Okay. That's, that's the wording that they use. The ME also said that there was arteriosclerotic uh, heart disease, hypersensitive uh, heart disease, uh, fentanyl intoxication, and recent methamphetamine use. That was all things that he found within George Floyd's body uh, during the autopsy. And he also, you know, this is really insignificant to mention, but here I'm going to mention it. He tested positive for COVID-19 like that even matters, but there you go. I mentioned it. But then Floyd's family had a separate autopsy done, a private autopsy done. And surprise, surprise, they came to a different conclusion than the county's ME. But the pathologist in this case for the family, they did the autopsy and ruled that Floyd died of mechanical asphyxiation due to pressure on the neck and that his death was a homicide. Okay. So they both ruled it a homicide, but for slightly different reasons. But the other thing is that they ruled that Floyd had no underlying medical problems that caused or even contributed to his death. And, you know, oddly that even though Floyd was constantly talking during this encounter, you know, that does not mean that he was unable to breathe that or that he was able to breathe rather. And so very, very conflicting things there, obviously that, you know, each one of those sides have their, their own dog in the fight. Um, but the videos of the incident went viral online. Uh, there's one particular video, uh, from one particular scene, a cell phone camera scene, and you know, it sparked immediate outrage and, and condemnation and rightfully so, frankly, all four of those officers, uh, were subsequently fired for their roles in the death of George Floyd, but that's certainly not where it ended for them. Former officer now, uh, Chauvin, he was originally charged with third degree murder and second degree manslaughter in the killing of George Floyd. But less than a week later, the charges against former officer Floyd or so, excuse me, former officer Chauvin were increased to second degree murder and the former officers Tao, Lane, and Kung were charged with aiding and abetting second degree murder. So this is a very, very serious situation. Those guys are, are in jail and, you know, especially Derek Chauvin, he's, he may not ever see the outside of a jail cell, uh, certainly after his trial. But 
Now I want to kind of get into, before I talk about uh, the situation that went on with Rayshard Brooks and, and kind of how that fanned the flames, is I want to give you some universal thoughts in reference to the death of George Floyd. These are universal thoughts. Like, I don't know of a serious person that doesn't think these things. First thing is this. Former officer Derek Chauvin is, in large part, responsible for the death of George Floyd. I mean, because, duh. Because I have not seen a single law enforcement officer, not one, not, not some rando on Twitter, not someone on Fox news or OAN or any of these, not a single one of them has come out in support of Chauvin's actions. Not one. It's a universal. The second is that officers Tao Lane and Kung in some part are responsible for the death of George Floyd as well. You know, again, their knee or their shin bone were not, were not on the neck of George Floyd, but they sat around and watched that. You know, one of the officers at some point, he, part of his defense that he's creating now is that he mentioned to Chauvin at some point, hey man, you know, we got him, you know, let, let's take it easy. And he didn't do it, but they, they sat by and watched this happen. They could have done something. The third universal thought is this was clearly a case of an ex, of excessive force. There's so many stories and, and anecdotes going around about uh, cases of excessive force that aren't excessive force. This was clearly excessive force. I don't think there's any debate on that. And the last thing here is that George Floyd should not have died that day. He shouldn't have died. I, again, I have not talked to a single person that says, yep, his actions should have led to his death that day. Not all the situations are like that, but his certainly was. But now we need to transition a little bit and talk about some of the inconvenient facts in reference to the death of George Floyd. So let this be the beginning. I made it a whole 30 minutes without saying anything that was too terribly controversial, but you know, here we go. The first inconvenient fact in this whole, you know, George Floyd situation is that George Floyd, in small part, is responsible for his own death. He would still be alive today if he hadn't broken the law and didn't resist arrest. Almost 100%. He would still be alive. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. Did he deserve to die that day? No. No, he absolutely did not. No one believes that. No serious person believes that. But again, if he hadn't broken the law that day, and he would not have had, he essentially would not have had any interactions with former Officer Chauvin. And thus, Officer Chauvin could not have killed him. This is not an opinion. This is not my opinion. This is a fact. If he hadn't broken the law, he would not have ran into Officer Chauvin that day. We can pretty much guarantee it. Okay? Guys, if you don't break the law, in general, you almost 100% of the time will not experience police brutality. Most instances of police brutality where excessive force don't just fall out of the sky. Okay? If you comply with the police officer, you almost 100% of the time will not experience excessive force. Okay? Again, those are just facts. The second one here is that George Floyd and former officer Chauvin 100% knew each other prior to this incident, but there is no corroboration to the rumor that these two butted heads while working security together. This is a rumor that's been, you know, traveling around the internet. Joe Rogan's mentioned it several times on his podcast, but here's the deal. Those two guys did know each other 100%. They did work together at security at these nightclubs and different things like that. But the guy who originally said that those two, that, that Floyd and Chauvin, you know, got into, you know, they butted heads over how to do security at the club. He has since gone back on his original statement. He had confused George Floyd with somebody else that worked in the club. Okay. So please stop propagating that lie. And if anybody knows Joe Rogan that listens to this podcast, please tell him to stop saying that. I mean, because he's not, he's just not aware that the guy that originally said that has taken back his statement. Okay. The third inconvenient fact here is, and, and this is just kind of crazy to me, but the charge of second degree murder makes the case against former officer Chauvin much, much weaker. 
And the likelihood of him walking went up dramatically when his charges were, were upgraded. Because in the state of Minnesota, they have something called third degree murder, but it's essentially manslaughter. But when you upgrade that to second degree murder, again, just as a reminder for anyone that doesn't know, first degree murder says that there is prior planning and intent to kill, right? And then you follow through with it. Second degree murder is you weren't setting out, you know, when you got in the car that day with your lunch pail and and your briefcase to go kill somebody, but you just ended up doing it. Like you meant to kill somebody. So there has to be intent that has to be proven. Okay. There has to be intent. And in this case, there is you know, 99 times out of a hundred, you're, he's going to go down for manslaughter or maybe a hundred times out of a hundred. But I feel like, and again, I'm not a trial lawyer, but second degree murder, they, if the prosecution doesn't have the goods on intent, he's going to walk. It's at least 50, 50. I'll put it that way. It's a coin flip at that point. So the prosecution is taking, you know, the district attorney and all the people in this case, they're taking a risk here, right? And maybe that's calculated. We'll, we'll certainly get more into that later. But the last thing here in terms of inconvenient facts on this situation is, and this is the most important thing, maybe of the entire episode that I'm going to say, and it's, it's seemingly so obvious, but no one's talking about it. And it's this, we have no evidence whatsoever that the reason George Floyd is dead is because officer Derek Chauvin is a racist. I'll say it again because it's the most obvious statement possible, but I'll say it again. We have no evidence whatsoever that the reason George Floyd is dead is because Officer Derek Chauvin is a racist. But we'll come back to that a little bit later because now we need to talk about what happened to Rayshard Brooks. Okay. So this was on the night of June 12th, uh, 2020. This was a little over two weeks after the death of George Floyd. Uh, this was a 27 year old Rashard Brooks, who is a black guy. If that matters, he was killed by officer Garrett Rolfe, a white guy, if that matters of the Atlanta police department. Okay. So let me kind of give you a breakdown of what happened here. This was just before 11 PM that night and officer Devin Brosnan was dispatched to a Wendy's in Southern Atlanta. And there was a report of a man that was asleep in his car, blocking the drive-thru, right? And you know, when you want your Wendy's, you want to get your Wendy's. But Officer Brosnan uh, came to the scene. He came to the window. This is all on his body camera. And he woke Brooks up and told him to move. Uh, even while the officer was talking to Brooks, he actually fell asleep again. So Officer Brosnan, you know, had to wake Brooks up again. But he finally got him to where he was. He had come to enough to where he could like pull off and pull to the side of the road where he could talk to him or the side of the parking lot rather. Now, Officer Brosnan obviously suspected DUI, so he called for assistance, and that's when Officer Garrett Rolfe arrived on the scene. So Brooks was visibly drunk and impaired, uh, but the officers did administer a breathalyzer test, and Brooks did blow above the legal limit. I think it was 25% over the legal limit or something like that. Um, Both officers had a very calm discussion with Brooks for almost 30 minutes, right? I mean, this is all online. Like, I'm not making any of this up. For almost 30 minutes, they had a very calm discussion with him, okay? The officers and Brooks were, were all calm. Everybody was just discussing what was going on. But here's the thing is, is the officers, the officers obviously couldn't let Brooks go. I mean, in the state that he was in, so they informed Brooks that he was under arrest. He had had too much to drink. They couldn't let him get back in the car. He had already broken the law by driving the car while being so drunk. He had to be arrested. Okay. Now, immediately. Brooks began resisting arrest and started fighting both police officers. He wasn't, you know, just making it difficult for them to cuff him. He was attacking both officers. Okay. Now Brooks was on parole at the time, which very likely led to him not wanting to be arrested. But you know, that just kind of gives you a little bit of an idea of what was his state of mind at the time. Now, officer Brosnan, who was the first officer on the scene, just as a reminder, he drew his taser, but during the struggle, Brooks took from the officer. So he took the taser from the officer and tried to shoot him with it. Right. 
Um, which, you know, bad on the officer for getting your, your weapon taken away. Weapon retention is, is a big issue for a lot of cops. So that shouldn't have happened, but it did happen. Uh, officer Brosnan said that the taser actually hit him in the head and, and caused him or actually hit him and it caused him to hit his head on the ground. So that's what he claims. Uh, Brooks then attacked Dof- officer Rolf. That was the second officer on the scene. He punched him. Uh, he was attacking him. Officer Rolf drew his taser at this point, not his gun, but his taser and tried to shoot Brooks with it. Okay. Uh, Brooks took off running through the parking lot, uh, still in possession of officer Brosnan's taser. So officer Rolf tried to shoot Brooks with his taser. Uh, now while running away, Brooks turned around and now tried to shoot officer Rolf with the taser, but the shot actually went over, over officer Rolf's whole head. Um, and it was at this point that officer Rolf dropped his taser. He drew his firearm, shot three times, striking Brooks, twice. And, uh, the third shot actually went into a car where other three other people were in there, but, uh, none of them were injured. Um, it's been reported that after officer Rolf dropped Brooks with two of those shots, he began to administer first aid until the ambulance arrived. That's, uh, under that's hotly contested right now. How quickly did he administer aid? All those different things, but he clearly did administer first aid after he'd shot him before the ambulance arrived. Uh, Brooks was pronounced dead following surgery at the hospital. Um, by the way, the entirety of this incident, as it again was recorded on the officer's body cameras, there's also the security cameras from outside the Wendy's. Um, but this situation got even crazier five days later, because five days after the incident, this was on June 17th, officer Rolf was fired and officer Brosnan was placed on administrative duty, which is basically he was put behind a desk. Officer Brosnan was charged with aggravated assault and two counts of violation of police oath. But on the same day as the, as his firing, the Fulton County district attorney announced 11 charges against former officer Rolf. 11. Okay. The first was damage to property. Then four police oath violations. Then five counts of aggravated assault. And then the, the cherry on top felony murder, felony murder. And Georgia is a death penalty state. So essentially this officer is going to be fighting for his life whenever he eventually has his day in court. Okay. Now, after the announcement of these charges, Atlanta police officers staged what, what's being called a blue flu, but essentially for an evening or two, uh, pretty much every Atlanta police officer called in sick. Basically like, okay, we're going to do our job. We're going to do the, the job by the book and uh, to the utmost of our training. And then the DA is just going to come down like this. All right, check out what happens in Atlanta on a night without cops. You want to experience the purge? We'll give it to you firsthand. You won't even have to rent the movie, right? So now we need to talk about the universal thoughts uh, in reference to the death of Rayshard Brooks. But these are universal thoughts of sane people. Because there's a lot of people saying a lot of things about this situation. There's not a whole lot of universality in some of the thoughts. But these are what the sane people are saying about the death of Rayshard Brooks. Okay? The first thing is that this was a good shoot. A good shoot is, you know, basically coppling, go for, yep, uh, that that was he was fully within his rights to do what he did to use lethal force. I've yet to see a single law enforcement officer come out and say otherwise. There was originally this report that, you know, Officer Brosnan uh, came out and said, you know, he couldn't believe how Officer Rolf uh, treated the situation and how he acted in the situation. But that was a, that was a lie. You know, it was it was put out there by all the, the mainstream media. And then the retraction was obviously, you know, put on the back page. But this was front page news at the time. Right. The second universal thought outside of the fact that this was a good shoot is the charges against the police officer in this case against Dr. Rolf are some of the most egregious charges possible in light of the evidence. 
guys, the entire encounter is on video for Christ's sake. The, the entire thing. There's no ambiguity here. We're not piecing together the stories of 17 people, half of which were drunk. We have the video. The videos are out there, guys. I'm not going to put it in the show notes because there's literally so many different versions of the video. There's people breaking down the video. There's just the raw video. It's out there. These charges are insane. And the third universal thought for sane people is that comparing this death to the death of George Floyd is asinine. These situations literally could not be more different. Again, the overwhelming majority, just look at the population, just look at the blue population, look at cops, look at law enforcement. You have universal 100% of the people are all arm in arm saying the killing of George Floyd was wrong, right? It was completely wrong. But then you have the same thing on the other side saying that this cop in Atlanta acted completely within the bounds of the law and his training. So comparing these two instances as if they're indicative of something else is ridiculous. And the last universal thought is this, is that Rayshard Brooks, not the police officers, were at fault in this situation. Again, for almost 30 minutes, these cops knew this guy had to be arrested. But, you know, they calmly get him to the side. They calmly discuss things with him. They want to make sure that he's relaxed so that they can put him under arrest because you can't be driving around drunk. He blew over the legal limit. He's got to go to jail. Okay. Rayshard Brooks was at fault, not the police. So now we did the inconvenient facts in reference to the death of George Floyd. So we're going to do the same with Rayshard Brooks. First one is this. Rayshard Brooks, in large part, is responsible for his own death. He would still be alive today if he hadn't broken the law, if he didn't resist arrest, if he didn't attack the cops and didn't try to shoot them with a taser. He would be alive today if not for making all of those decisions on his own. Now, is a DUI worth the death penalty? No, but anyone making the claim, that claim as if it's, you know, even matters, it's at best disingenuously moronic and at worst manipulatively evil. No one thinks that DUI should give you the death penalty. So don't let people play those vernacular games with you. He was killed that day because he tried to attack cops. Or no, he didn't try to attack cops. He he physically attacked them, right? You can't do that. The second inconvenient fact is the fact that Brooks was shot in the back while running away, which everyone's making hay about, it's completely irrelevant completely irrelevant. Everyone's like, well, you know, at that point he wasn't a danger to anybody. He was running away. I mean, the two shots, he was shot in the back and he was shot in the butt. Like he, he was at no, like the officer was at fault. He, he murdered him because he was running away at that point. The thing that you're missing dummies is he was running away with the cop's taser. Now, some people are like, well, he had already taken his two shots. It would have had to have been reloaded. Do you know that for sure? Did you know that there wasn't another shot available? The fact that he, because again, the guys just think about the realistic. So let's say I break into your house, right? I break into your house because I want to take your stuff or do damage to you. But if I turn my back away from you the entire time, am I safe? Am I safe from your retribution and your bullets? Because here's the thing, guys, my body can be faced away from you and my hand with a weapon in it can be facing towards you which is exactly what happened in this situation. So everyone that's talking about the fact that he was shot in the back, they, they just don't understand how stupid of an argument that is because he was still in immediate danger. And here's the other thing. Here's the other thing is let's say he connected with the taser shot. Luckily it went over to officer Rolf's head. Have you ever seen someone get tased or been tased yourself? Your body becomes completely incapacitated at that exact moment. 
because you have, I don't know, hundreds of thousands or millions of volts running through your body of electricity, your body basically shuts down. Anyone that is tased, when you watch these police videos of training for tasing, there's a reason why they have people standing, holding their arms and look on either side of them in case they fall over because you can't stand up anymore. So at this point, he's already shot one officer with a taser. If he shoots officer Rolf with the taser, what does he do at this point? Because it looks like everyone's just assuming that he was just going to casually set the taser down and just go skipping through the parking lot on his merry way. What's to say he doesn't come back to the officer who's now incapacitated and take his firearm off his hip? Do you know that that would have happened or wouldn't have happened? Because I don't, but it's certainly a possibility. So the police officer doesn't really have the, the option at that point to say, ah, well, gosh darn it, his back's turned to me. He's got one of my weapons, uh, but yeah, he's probably not a danger to uh, us or anybody else in this immediate vicinity. We got to let him go because all we can see is his back. No, at that point, shooting that guy in the back was completely, completely justified. So, uh, so again, if you hear people talking about the fact that he was just shot in the back, it doesn't matter. He, his body, his head, and his arm with the weapon in it were turned towards the officer and he was trying to shoot him with it. Gosh. All right. Third thing here, the inconvenient facts on this case is the, the prosecutor in this case against officer Rolf, they are obviously trying to make an example out of officer Rolf and they're using the momentum of public opinion in the wake of the George Floyd killing to do it because there's not a DA in their right mind in any city, in any democratic city or Republican city, it doesn't matter. That's going to put these types of charges on a police officer unless what happened two and a half or so weeks before that hadn't happened. Which, which is just egregious, but they're trying to make an example out of this cop. And I certainly hope they don't succeed because you got to think as the DA, you know, they're trying to, you know, build up their woke bona fides saying that they're going to go after this cop and make an example out of them. But that would ruin this cop's life. Yeah. How long would he last in prison? Uh, you know, a cop in there for capital murder. Like, I don't know if they have separate wings for, for police officers that have to do life in prison or get the death penalty on death row. He's going to sit there and rot for a couple of decades. No, he's going to get killed in there, right? For basically doing the right thing in that situation. And the last thing here, this is going to sound a lot like something that you heard a little while ago, but the last inconvenient fact on the, the killing of Rashard Brooks is that we have no evidence whatsoever that the reason Rashard Brooks is dead is because Officer Garrett Rolfe is a racist. None. George Floyd is not dead because he was black. Richard Brooks is not dead because he was black. We have no evidence that either of these white officers killed those men because they were black, because they had hate in their heart. And all they could see in that moment was red and black. We don't have that evidence. But guys, immediately following the video of the George Floyd killing went viral, Black Lives Matter and Antifa and all these other agitator groups, they began rioting, they began looting, essentially trying to burn the country to the ground. Uh, the killing of Rayshard Brooks uh, a couple of weeks later, three weeks later or so, that just fanned the flames, it added gasoline to the fire, and there's just basically been chaos in the country every, ever since in some way, shape, or form. Now guys, again, even though there's no evidence to suggest that George Floyd or Rayshard Brooks were killed because they were black men in America, that's exactly what all the race hustlers, Democrats, mainstream media are telling you is the truth. The, the thing is, is two non-race-based incidents are supposedly evidence of deep-seated American racism towards blacks. That's, that's the narrative that you're getting, okay? And we're certainly going to have much, much more on that later. But guys, 
as I've been thinking about this and been thinking about the situation, most people can only see the situation that's right in front of their face, but here's the deal. The aftermath of the killing of George Floyd has almost nothing to do with racial issues in America. It has almost nothing to do with police brutality and almost nothing to do with even George Floyd. And and here's the reasons why I say that. The first reason is this, and this is from earlier. Again, we have no evidence whatsoever that the reasons George Floyd and Richard Brooks are dead is because of two racist white cops. And yet this incident is supposed to be indicative of a race problem in the United States. So here's the thing, guys, is if you say that that's the case, if you say that the deaths of Floyd and Brooks are because of some sort of racism, right? Racist white cops, then I have a simple request for you. Show me the receipts. I'm going to need to see the receipts because basically the killing that launched a, a thousand riots or whatever you want to call it. They're saying it's because of systemic racism, because of police brutality, because racism against blacks specifically. Show me the receipts. Show, show me anything that suggests that officer Shalvin or officer Roth are racist. Officer Shalvin seems like a complete douche. Everything that I've heard about that guy, it's like, man, I wouldn't want to be that guy's neighbor. I wouldn't want to see him once a month at the grocery store, but that doesn't mean he's a racist murderer. Guys, come on. Accusing someone of racism without having the evidence that, that they acted in a racist way is one of the grossest and ugliest things that you can do to somebody. I mean, that's akin to saying somebody sexually assaulted somebody else without having the evidence. It's so gross. It's so evil. However, the thing is, is someone's current or former words or actions or group alignments or affiliations, they can give you some insight into what someone believes. I mean, guys, no one was confused as to whether or not Dylan Roof was was a racist. You know, that that was the the white kid, the, the white supremacist that went into the black church and killed all those people. There was no confusion as to why he did that. It wasn't because he was a troubled kid or played violent video games or read, you know, dark novels. Like he did that because he was a racist and he wanted to see black people basically bleed to death, right? Because here's the thing, guys, is two things can be true at once. Floyd's death could be a bad killing and not be a murder. Floyd broke the law and he didn't deserve to die. Shalvin could be a bad cop douchebag and not a racist. Why is everything a zero-sum game? I don't understand it. Guys, Shalvin killed Floyd because he was reckless and negligent. There's nothing to suggest. I've not seen a single thing to suggest that he was reckless and negligent because Floyd is black. Nothing. And guys, for those of you where, you know, gosh, the, the hair on the back of your neck standing up right now and you're so fired up and you can feel that bead of sweat dripping down your forehead, I want you to calm down again. I'm going to ask you to calm down again. And again, think about it. What is the evidence that we have that this happened because of racism? Because if you got nothing, you need to shut up. The second thing here is the narrative that black men are being hunted down and killed in the streets of the United States, modern day lynchings, as I've heard some people call it, that it's an epidemic. It's wildly false, wildly false. And here's an easy proof. And Ben Shapiro pointed this out years and years ago. This is one of the first clips of him that came out. It was some debate uh, with some radio station. I think it was in Seattle. But you know how we know that there isn't an epidemic of police murdering black men in the United States of America? You know how we know that? Just a quick, easy proof. Because we can name the so-called victims. Because in some cases they were victims. I mean, the names on the lips of these activists are, are Michael Brown and Philando Castile and Freddie Gray and Eric Garner and Tamir Rice. And, and, but 
But guys, just think about that. Because again, the Philando Castile killing was horrific, terrible killing. That that police officer should be in jail. I'm not actually sure where he where he's at right now, but you know, horrible, horrible killing. But Michael Brown, there's still people saying hands up, don't shoot. For those of you that haven't been paying attention because that seems like it was so long ago, Michael Brown was that was an incredibly justified shooting. He just got through robbing a store. He was high at the time. He was walking through the street. Police officer said, You need to get out of the street. He attacks the police officer, punches him. While he's in his police cruiser, reaches for his gun, the gun fires inside the vehicle, the officer is able to retain his weapon, Michael Brown runs away, but then he turns around and he starts running towards the police officer. Michael Brown was a huge human being, and this police officer was not a huge person. Police officer said, stop, 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 I'll shoot, stop, and then he shoots him. But the narrative for forever was that Michael Brown was on his knees begging for his life and that the police officer executed him. And you know how we know for 100% fact that that didn't happen? We have three bits of evidence. Number one, the officer testimony, which you might just say, well, of course he's going to say that. So we'll, we'll just get rid of the officer testimony. The second thing is the witness testimony, the eyewitness testimony. Okay. The overwhelming majority of which were black people said that that's exactly how the situation went down. He wasn't begging for his life. He was on his way to try and hurt the police officer and maybe kill him. And the third thing is the forensic evidence because one of the bullet wounds that hit Michael Brown went into basically if you it went into the top of his forearm. So if your hands are down to your side, you know, just right below where your bicep connects to your elbow, right there is where a shot went in and it exited behind. And so guys, if you bring your hands up and put them in front of you, like hands up, I'm surrendering. There's no way for a bullet to have an entry wound on the top of your forearm. Unless it's one of those curving bullets from that stupid movie from the 2000s. The thing is, is, but you still have people now that are saying those names, but, but that's not really the point here. I'm kind of getting off the point. I want to give you a thought experiment. Again, these are people that say there's an epidemic of black people being murdered in the streets by white racist cops or by the system or the man or whatever you want to call it. But here's your thought experiment. Okay. Outside of Anne Frank, can you name a single person that was murdered in the Holocaust? Just one. Okay, how about this? Can you name a single person that was murdered in the Soviet gulags? How about a single person that was murdered in Maoist China? Can you name a single person that was murdered under the rule of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia? How about this? Can you name a single Iraqi that was murdered under Al-Qaeda in Iraq? And guys, I could keep going, but I'll spare you. And the reason is, guys, is because you can't. You can't name any of these people by name. You know why? Because those were real epidemics of murder. Those were real genocides in history in some cases. Guys, if it's an epidemic, that means it's so widespread and it's too widespread to know any of the victims' names. And that does not mean someone in the United States that has been killed by bad policing, that those things don't matter. I'm talking about the narrative. Again, those, those people have the Imago Dei, like, you know, I want, I want them to be in heaven with Jesus. All, all the things, all the things. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the narrative. And the narrative that they're being hunted down in the streets is so disingenuous and so false. So false. Because here are the stats, guys. According to the Washington Post, and notice I didn't say Infowars, I didn't say Fox News, I didn't say any evil person that you might think is evil. According to the Washington Post in 2019, last year, a total of nine unarmed black men were killed by cops. Nine. There are some people that say it's as many as 15. I've seen the number nine used the most often. So that's the number that I'm going to use. Nine. Okay. Now of those nine, not all of the officers that pulled the trigger were white. 
That's one little point. And some of the black men that were killed were fighting the cops at the time of their deaths. They just so happened to not have any weapons on them. They didn't have a gun or a knife or a pipe. They were just using their fists. Okay. So here's the thing, guys. Every year in the United States, there are somewhere in the neighborhood of 375 million direct interactions between police and the citizenry. 375 million. That's six zeros after the five. Okay. Now, do we hear about most of those interactions? No, of course we don't. Right. But if we use the available data that we have for 2019 and the fact that cops killed nine unarmed black men in that year, police killing unarmed black men amount to 0.0000024% of police interactions in 2019. 0.0000024% of police interactions in 2019 resulted in an unarmed black man being killed by the police. Now, I don't off the top of my head know the definition of an epidemic, but can we just go ahead and agree that that it's not an epidemic? Because here's the other thing. A police officer in America is almost 19 times more likely to be killed by a black man than an unarmed black man is to be killed by a police officer of any color. Again, we're talking about the narrative. We're not talking about lives that they don't, in, in ways that they don't matter. We're talking about the narrative and the narrative is just wrong. And here's the other thing, guys, is some people will cite that more white men are killed by police in the United States than black men. That's a really stupid argument, by the way, because populations of those two groups aren't the same in the United States. Obviously, there's per capita that you need to take into account. But here's the thing. If you want to talk about disparities in the per capita amount of black men that are shot by police, which sounds fair on its face, then why is it then inappropriate for me or anyone else to bring up the disparities in per capita crimes committed by blacks compared to other races? Because you bring up your point about disparities in per capita amount of black men that are shot, and then I bring up the disparities in per capita crimes committed, and I'm racist and you're not. You're woke. You're progressive. That doesn't make any sense to me. Because and, and then you have to explain to me how Roland Fryer Jr., so that's the Harvard economist who just so happens to be black. Again, that shouldn't have to matter, but it does matter. He did a huge research project and a study rather, and he released his findings that found that there was no evidence of racial discrimination in shootings in the United States. None. Guys, any evidence to the contrary fails to take into account crime rates and civilian behavior before and during interactions with police. The the narrative is just so false. And again, if we're talking about things that are happening after the killing of George Floyd that really don't have anything to do with George Floyd, let's talk about the rioting and looting. Let's move on to that. And much, much more on that on next week's episode. But right from the top, guys, we have to draw a line of demarcation between rioters, looters, anarchists, terrorists, and peaceful protesters, right? That's just intellectually honest to do that. But the line has been awfully muddled along the way. You know what I mean? Guys, there is some truth to those who are lamenting uh, being lumped in with the rioters and looters, but these demonstrations are largely taking place in the same areas. The the rioting and looting take place in the same areas as some of these peaceful protests. But when people get on the news and say, most of the protests around the country have been largely peaceful, it's like, what are you watching? Are they largely peaceful because they're not yelling as they're roasting marshmallows on the building that they just set on fire? I mean, let's be real here. And and guys, here's the other thing is if you are really one of the peaceful protesters, but then you see things are getting out of hand because of rioters and anarchists or Black Lives Matter, Antifa, whatever the situation it is, it's your responsibility to remove yourself from that area in that situation. 
I mean, no one should, should should feel bad for you if you get hit by a tear gas canister or a rubber bullet because you decided to stand next to people that were being crazy and destroying things. But the, the reality here is, is how does rioting in the streets and looting stores bring justice to the death of George Floyd? How does it bring any justice for that? What exactly does stealing a television or a pair of Jordans or, or anything do for the Floyd family? I mean, what does burning down your own damn neighborhood do for racial injustice? or whatever cause you say you're fighting. And, and to all of the, can you hear us now, people? Because that was a nice trope on Twitter for a while. Oh, can you hear us now? You weren't listening before, but now we set the city on fire, so I bet you hear me. No, no, I don't hear you. I can't hear you. Because I don't listen to people when they're throwing a fit. I don't listen to children throw fits either. The thing is, is your level of outrage doesn't equal your rightness. It simply doesn't. Into all of the no justice, no peace people, Derek Chauvin is in prison. I mean, Richard Brooks attacks two cops. He tried to tase both of them and died for his trouble. What injustice are we referring to exactly? What injustice? It's almost as if the rioting and looting have nothing to do with what they say it does. Almost like it has to do with something else. And we're going to get way, way more into that in the next episode. And then the last thing that we see, we've seen a lot of is that corporate posturing and virtue signaling. We're seeing a lot of that. So every company from Amazon to McDonald's, they came out of the woodwork to show how woke they are, right? For these companies, you know, you basically post a black square on Instagram on Blackout Tuesday. And so racism's over now, right? Is that how it works? Here's the thing with most of these companies, and it's every company on the planet, even Gushers is coming out with their own thing, right? They're so desperate to be on the right side of history, as it were. And they'll do anything to prove it to you. But guys, don't get it twisted. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this one because it's so obvious. This isn't about heartfelt anguish over the state of racial relations in America. It's not. It's about money. They feel like they can prove their woke bona fides right now and make money off of you and all of the businesses that they're looking, that are doing this right now. They're looking to capitalize and increase all of this, this uptick in, in, you know, basically proving it how good of people they are. Again, it's a virtue signaling right? But guys, as we weave our way to the end of this episode, I know it's already gone pretty long, but again, that's why I'm saying we, we can't just do all this in one fell swoop. There's, there's six things I want to go over here at the very, very end, because we've talked about a lot of things and, and I promise there's going to be a point here so that you have some takeaways. The first, or I guess we should talk about what we're going to talk about. So there are six foundational thoughts that might make you angry to hear, but you need to hear. So for anyone that's, you know, been angry this entire time, they they probably stopped listening a while ago, but there's some more things that we need to talk about in terms of setting the foundation, not only for this episode and for our discussion overall, but where we're going to be going over the next couple of weeks. The first foundational thought is this. America is not a racist country. It's not. And I kind of have, this isn't tongue in cheek. This is the real reason why it's because an inanimate object can't be racist by definition. Inanimate means not alive. You can't imbue a characteristic of a human onto an object. A country is not a person, right? It's a group of people. So to say that America is a racist country doesn't even make linguistic sense, much less any otherwise. Uh, The second foundational thought is this, is the Declaration of Independence, which basically took a few black eyes over the weekend, right? You know, you have Colin Kaepernick and all these morons saying, oh, 4th of July is a racist holiday. It's supporting white supremacy or whatever. The Declaration of Independence was an abolitionist document. Wait, what are you talking about? Abolition document. Here's the thing. There's much to do that has been made about the Declaration of Independence not applying to all Americans in America when it was written. And that's obviously correct. 
But it was that same document that became one of the cornerstones for later abolishing slavery across the country. So to give you a little bit of the background, in the 1600s, English philosopher John Locke, who was influenced by the earlier writings of Thomas Hobbes, they conceptualized the rights, or, or Locke conceptualized the rights for humans that, and that they were natural and inalienable, right? And beyond that, Locke believed in the natural rights to life, liberty, and property, okay? That, that was the Lockean view. But when Thomas Jefferson was charged with writing the Declaration of Independence and whenever he did so, he changed it to read life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, now, you might think to yourself, okay, life, liberty, and property, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, you know, whatever, somewhat interchangeable. Why the change? So get ready for a little bit of history that you're not going to get from your blue checkmark people on Twitter. But during the time of even the grumblings of the American Revolution, there was already a debate going on. There was already a debate raging about slavery in the American colonies already at that time. Well, I got the receipts for that. We can go into that. But Jefferson's original draft of the Declaration of Independence, the original draft included a 168-word passage that condemned slavery as, as one of many horrific evils that American colonies were basically forced to continue because of their connection to British custom and British laws, okay? The passage was edited out later due to pressure from non-abolitionists, right? The passage, uh, you know, explicitly decrying slavery was edited out, even though Thomas Jefferson wanted it to be in there. Now, in those days, some people, slaves, were obviously property. So Jefferson, in a very coy way of doing this, didn't want to include the word property in the Declaration of Independence because he knew it was problematic, specifically because of slavery. That's why he changed it to the pursuit of happiness instead of property. And again, the Declaration of Independence became a foundational writing for the abolitionist movement in the United States. And here's the thing that's really uncomfortable about talking about that is because Thomas Jefferson did all this while owning slaves himself. His hypocrisy on this issue is stark and unfortunate. Like that, that is so unbelievably clear. But at the same time, it doesn't change what he did. This guy was, was not without sin, but he wrote the, the cornerstone document to get rid of slavery in the United States. That's just clearly what he did. Another foundational thought here, number three, there is no such thing as systemic racism in modern day United States. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Did your head just explode? Because again, there is no such thing as systemic racism. Okay. It's a farce. It's a lie. It's a myth that's been used to propagate the victim mentality and to control people. And guys, the, the reason people say that they're fighting systemic racism, quote unquote, I'm using air quotes in my studio where you can't see me. It's because it's vague. Because when you say systemic racism, it sounds evil. It sounds like a bad guy in a Bond movie, but it's not specific. And again, I, this was pointed out a long time ago in a debate. This was Ben Shapiro again, but he pointed out that often if, if you can point to a specific instance of racism or a specific law that is racist in intent, then people like him and me and, and millions of other people will stand by you and fight against that when you can point to a specific instance, but to just point to this vague issue of racism and call it systemic racism and that it just exists somewhere out there in the ether. No one can help you fight that enemy. You can't fight an enemy that you can't see or precisely identify. I mean, just think about it. If General MacArthur is like, ah, we're going to go fight uh, evil. You know, you would be okay to raise your hand and be like, sir, uh, is there a particular kind of evil? Is there a front we're fighting this evil on? You can't just say it randomly and, and people just understand. But the thing is, is people have bought this, this narrative hook, line and sinker. That, that it's, oh, we're systemically racist. So we just assume everything else that you build on top of that argument makes sense. But again, 
Most of the people that are attacking the system, they're only doing so because they can't come up with anything specific to fight. Or they just want to see the entire system burn to the ground, which we'll certainly spend some more time talking about next week. But, but this idea that we're systemically racist is just, it's, it's absurd. It's, it's not founded, in fact, in modern day United States. And don't talk to me about redlining. Don't talk to me about any of those things. Because again, I'm talking about today in 2020. And if you pointed me to a modern case of, of redlining, again, tell me where to be. I will stand right there next to you. I'm not going to throw a Molotov cocktail at a police car. I'm not going to, you know, spray paint BLM on the side of a building, but I'll stand right next to you and fight against that injustice because that's specifically racial injustice. But to just point to systemic racism, that's just not specific enough. The fourth foundational thought here is there are zero countries on the planet, zero countries on the planet earth that are devoid of racist people. Zero. Now, there are countries, certainly, that don't have the history of the African slave trade. Yeah, sure. But almost every single country in the world and every single tribe, creed, and race has utilized and or experienced some kind of tribe, creed, or race-based slavery. It's happened. Every single one. Because here's the thing that, that's, that's really uncomfortable for people to think about, and you know we'll probably get more into this in, in the reparations discussion, but what about the African tribes that enslaved other African tribes and then sold those slaves into the, uh, the American slave trade? Th- that was Africans enslaving other Africans. That's why people are talking about tribalism a lot more than racism. That tribalism is way worse because, you know, the Northern Irish and the Southern Irish, they were killing each other. They looked exactly the same and sounded the exact same. Like this is maybe more about tribalism than it is about racism, but maybe that's a topic for another day. But guys, there are some modern countries that people claim don't have a problem with race. You know, uh, we don't have a problem with race here, but you know what most of those countries seem to have in common? They're incredibly homogenous. Their people are the same. They have the same ethnicity, the, the same lines, the same everything. But, but here's the interesting thing is when the doors or, or more literally the borders of these homogenous countries are opened, it's amazing how these docile folks become very judgmental of people that don't look like them. I'm specifically thinking about a country like Sweden that after they had, uh, you know, the, the tremendous amount of Muslims that were being spread out throughout the country, you know, some of which were ISIS and, and things that were spreading out all of a sudden Swedish people were having a race problem all of a sudden. Because it wasn't just a bunch of tall, tan, blonde-haired, blue-eyed people walking around, right? It was just a different type of person walking around there. So again, no country is without racist. None. The fifth foundational thought here is there's no such thing as reverse racism. There is just racism. You know, I hear people even on conservative media, it's like, oh, well, that's reverse racism. It's like, there's no such thing. Just think about it. There's just racism. Again, this kind of goes back to, you know, identity politics and critical race theory and basically saying that, you know, white people can't, you can't be racist towards a white person because they are the ultimate oppressor. They are the white devil. They are the things, but that's just not true. If you treat someone differently or treat someone poorly, basic based just on their race alone, on the amount of melanin in their skin and the genetics and the things that are imbued on them that are sacred, that they can't change themselves. It's racist. You can't do that. And the last thing here, number six, is there are not two Americas. I've heard people say this, or dudes in my life that have said this, Kyle, there's two different Americas. There's the America that you grew up in, and then there's the America that I grew up in, because I'm a person of color and it's just different. What they're saying there, if you extrapolate that, that viewpoint out, is that their lived experience is representative of a different America. But you can't just extrapolate that out 
to people groups. That the logic doesn't work. It can't just be white lived experience and black lived experience and Latino lived experience and Asian lived experience and polka dotted people lived experience. That's not where it goes. You have to extrapolate that out completely. There are 330 million people that live in this country. So if you want to argue that there's not one America, there's two Americas, you actually have to argue that there's 330 million different Americas because everyone's got their own lived experience. It's all very, very different, right? I mean, that, that's not crazy for me to say. And so again, don't buy into that narrative. And just again, so since we're just setting the foundation here, the, the foundational thoughts are America is not a racist country. The Declaration of Independence was an abolitionist document. There's no such thing as systemic racism in the modern day United States. There are zero countries on the planet Earth that are devoid of racist people. There's no such thing as reverse racism. There's just racism. And the last one is there are not two Americas. There's just one America. So the thing is, guys, I know that we've spent a lot of time on a lot of different subjects, but this is all very, very important. Even this podcast as a standalone, even if you don't uh, end up catching the next two, it's going to be important for you to hear some of these things. And again, just to reiterate, guys, if I'm wrong about anything that I've said factually, please let me know. But if you just disagree with my opinion and you want to flame online, I'm not interested in that. But next week, we're going to talk a lot more about what's what's very likely going on. What's What's going on behind the scenes? Because again, I've already established in this episode that the majority of the things that you've seen happen over the last eight weeks in your country, in your city, in your neighborhood, have nothing to do with George Floyd. They have to do with something bigger. And we're going to dig into what exactly that means. But then we're also going to talk about the racial reconciliation piece. So as men of God, as warriors of Christ, as, you know, you know, lions from the tribe of Judah that, that we're aspiring to be, how are we to act? What are we supposed to do? And guys, to be frank with you, I've got some thoughts on it, but I'm going to be spending the next week, the next two weeks chewing on that myself. I don't have, I don't have that ready to go in the bag. And certainly guys, if you're expecting me to solve all the world's issues, especially on the issue of race in the next two weeks, uh, it's not going to happen, but I certainly do have some thoughts. So definitely stick around with us. Appreciate you sticking around this long. Guys, before we let you go, we will do a quick resilience boost. As you know, by now we are a men's ministry and our mission is cultivating manly resilience. Specifically, we do that by providing content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. So for today, I've got a couple of articles for you. Actually, one article, one book, and they're both by uh, Heather McDonald. And the first is The Myth of Systemic Police Racism. This is an article that was posted on the opinion page in the Wall Street Journal here recently. Uh, You do have to have a subscription to that, but you can probably find that uh, elsewhere online. I do have the link for you here. And then also the book that she wrote a few years back called The War on Cops because it kind of gets into this disintegration and um, just some of the things that people are trying to do to get under the system. And for a lot of it, it has to start with law enforcement if you're going to make the rest of the system topple down. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. We really do appreciate it. If you would, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher, and refer your friends to listen and share this on social media. Guys, if we deserve a five-star review, please leave us one. Let us know what you like about the content because we want to keep putting it out just for you. I'm currently booking speaking engagements for the remainder of 2020, even though those have kind of run dry because of COVID, dadgummit. But uh, if you want me to come speak to your team on your podcast at your men's event, either by the end of this year or early next year, just hit me up via email, info at at undaunted.life. Again, that is I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. The website is www.undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at undauntedlife or facebook.com backslash undauntedlife. Check out our free devotionals on the YouVersion Bible app. Just search Undaunted Life under plans. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their entire music library for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is their song Defender, which is off their latest record entitled Guardians. The links to all of this are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, Keep cultivating manly resilience. Keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. Keep seeking the Lion of Judah. Whoa!